This is an ABC podcast. It wasn't so long ago that people were predicting the end of religion. The world, or at least the rich and well-educated West, was going secular, atheist even. But as is often the case, the situation is much more complex than it first appears. Yes, congregations are diminishing, but it seems humanity might be in a period of spiritual transformation, not simply decline, influenced by the internet and marked by a trend towards individual spirituality. And some researchers even suggest that religious belief is hardwired into the human brain. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Understanding the changing nature of religious belief in the 21st century and how it's likely to transform over coming decades. That's our program today. I think that institutions have been struggling in religion. I mean, institutions have had a problem with legitimacy, not just in religion, but more widely. And that's really become acute for a lot of religions. But people, in many cases, are still spiritual. They still want lots of the goods that religion can offer. And religion offers lots of things, not just spirituality. But they want to do that in a way that's more personally meaningful for them. You know, and as we become more used to making our own decisions, being consumers, being independently minded, so, of course, we think that religion should fit that as well. And we're less likely to want to just take things on trust and be obedient in our religious lives. So elements of consumerism now influence the way we engage with matters religious. Professor Linda Woodhead specialises in the sociology of religion at Lancaster University. Young people are very concerned about their identities. They're very concerned about forging connections with their people, with their communities, with their heritages, whether that's you know Islamic or Hindu or Christian or neo-pagan. So it's not that it's sometimes people think it's all a pick and mix and I just do my own thing and I sort of There's no limit to what I'm going to look for in my spiritual life. I don't think it's really like that. I think people still want to be grounded. They still want connections with the past and with other people. But they want to find a spiritual and moral and communal life that is personally meaningful for them. And they want to have, therefore, much more authority in their quest and in their spiritual development. How does that take form? Does it mean that people are finding it within themselves? Or are they doing that as part of wider groupings? Both. I think we've come to realise now, I'm speaking as a sociologist, there's been a desire to find a trend that you can find across the globe. All religion is declining. All religion is democratising. It's not that simple. It's a very pluralistic picture. So the answer is both. Some people go on a solitary quest and some people very much want to reconnect with, for example, Orthodox Judaism, even if their parents are much more liberal and are quite horrified at that. So we see both things going on at once. I mean, let me give you an example. In a number of countries, particularly ones with a Christian heritage, one of the fastest growing new kinds of religion is paganism. And that means a revival of pre-Christian traditions. And there are lots of those, you know, they might be Norse religion or it, it might be Native American or whatever. It might be, you know, it's, people are increasingly looking for something that's authentic to where they're from. But within paganism, the single most popular form is solitary paganism, 
where you find your own path. And you might meet occasionally once a year in a festival or something, but really you're reading books, you're on the internet and you're forging your own path. Doesn't mean you're not learning from other resources, but you're doing it on your own. But then there are also, there's a revival of heathenism. I mean, actually you could see this in the storming of the capital in Washington, where it's very big, where people are joining in groups, really quite conservative with leaders and very punctilious about trying to follow the ancient scriptures. So you've got, even in one movement, you've got both those tendencies. And in those examples, is there belief in a greater being or is it that they see value in taking on, not necessarily appropriating, but taking on the symbolism and history? I think both. It's strange to say people underestimate how important God, God's spirit, spirits are in religious life. We often just look at the political dimensions, the communal dimensions, economic dimensions, all the things you get from religion. But at the heart of it, all religion is about people wanting a deeper connection with some greater power or powers. And I think religions that don't deliver that, people feel they're not getting that kind of spiritual sustenance, they're the religions that fall away and die. I think that's what's happened to to the churches. It's no longer the place where younger people found they were getting that kind of spiritual connection. So that's essential. But people do want more than that. And they often want other things. They want a network and they want a connection to history. And they, again, as you say, it's individual. We want different sorts of mixtures of those things, I think. So I think that Woodhead's point that religion, especially formalized religion, has declined in some key ways in in Western societies and is being replaced not just by secular rationalism, but also by more individualistic, even idiosyncratic spiritual beliefs. I think that's just true. That's generally the trend. Dr. Connor Wood, a research associate with the Center for Mind and Culture in Boston. Even in a country like the United States, which once bucked that sort of trend of declining religiosity among wealthy countries, religious congregational affiliation has dropped below 50% for the first time in the history of the country, I believe. So we're on that trajectory as well. One aspect of that secularizing trajectory is that it compounds on itself because each generation then is less religious it sort of inculcates religiosity less strongly to their children. And so after, you know, if we have a few generations of that compounding and you go from a very sort of heavily Christian country like the United Kingdom was in the years before World War One to now where I think about 1% of young, specifically English citizens, consider themselves Anglican. And what does that mean for social cohesion within a society? We hear all the time that one of the reasons religion has been so successful is that it provides a sense of cohesion. My own research and the research of people who study religion from a kind of systemic perspective really points out the way that religious ritual and practices do different things at different levels of analysis. So for individuals, I think that partaking in a religious tradition, specifically the rituals and the sort of practices of it, can really have positive effects for just your general stability in life, your ability to deal with challenges and so forth. At the higher level, religion does create that cohesion by sort of forcing people to show that they're invested in something and creating a common identity that's rooted in a time that goes beyond the present. It has to be a sort of mythological past or a mythological future, or often both. And I don't think you can get real, real cohesion in a society unless you've got anchors in a deep time, a shared mythological deep time. 
So does that explain or help explain why we seem to have such a lack of cohesion today? Is the move towards this more individualistic spiritual belief system, is that at least part of it? Yeah, I think it's an index of it. An index is something that represents another thing by being causally related to it. If you see bear claw marks on a tree, that's a sign that there was a bear because there actually was a bear. I think that the sort of generation of all these individualistic spiritualities, it actually is the process of that social fissioning that you're talking about. It's not just an indicator of it on its own. That's what it is. As we seek out these sort of different frameworks for creating meaning in our lives, for understanding our place in the cosmos... It's just something that every human has to do. You have to figure out what kind of world you live in and how to get along in it. And for humans, we create meaning, you know, in these different individual ways. And when we're not all in the shared meaning world together or some way of making sense of reality together, then we kind of by definition, you don't have that same social cohesion. There is a sense in which we often think about the big major religions as being there for time immemorial. But you've pointed out, haven't you, in your research that religions come and go, that change is an essential part of religion. Could I get you to talk to that point? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of religions that have ever appeared have disappeared. There are countless small-scale societies whose religious and spiritual and ritual traditions have disappeared without ever having been recorded because behaviorally modern humanity has been around for at least 150,000 years by most estimates. So you just imagine that time. There's been a lot of cultures that have come and gone. There is constant experimentation with religion. And just as in the economy or in some types of animals that have lots of offspring and only a few survive, most of them don't survive. But the ones that do really do. I mean, there is something about the world religions, I think, that's different. They have staying power. And what is it that gives those big religions, what is it that gives them staying power? What's the appeal to a society? You could think of it as being just stochastic, random. You hit on the right combination of factors at the right time. The story about Christianity is it was growing at a very rapid clip in the Roman Empire for the first 300 years, but it was still being oppressed by the state for the most part until the Battle of the Milvan Bridge when Constantine you know, saw what he thought was an image of the chi and the rho, the famous symbol of Christ in Greek letters, and used that as a kind of symbol for his troops and won the battle. And then that's kind of what shifted the circumstances so that eventually Christianity became the state religion for the greatest, longest-lived empire in history and stuck around. So on one hand, you could just say random things happen at random times, and that affects how things fall out in a kind of butterfly effect. On the other hand, I think that the religions that have stuck around, like Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, have ways of affecting people's behavior that makes them quite cooperative in anonymous or impartial ways. So for example, in Islam, the trading routes between different parts of North Africa and the Middle East were sort of monopolized by Muslim traders who used Muslim practice as a way to recognize one another and trust one another. And you can't really carry on large-scale, long-distance commerce without some degree of implicit trust. Islam created that trust for those sort of trading routes. And what's important is that it's an impersonal trust. Like you don't have to know each other personally. You might have never seen each other before, but you see that this guy's doing the Salat prayer, midday prayer to Allah, and you say, okay, I know that this guy, he's in the same sort of world as I am, and I can trust him. If you have a religion that kind of gets people to cooperate in very large-scale, pretty predictable ways, 
over the long term, you might have a keeper. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. If religions come and go, and so do their gods, and if that's tied to meeting individual and societal needs at any given point in time, what does that tell us about where religion comes from? As I mentioned earlier, some scientists believe religious belief is hardwired into the human brain. Dr Justin Barrett is a psychologist from the organisation Blueprint 1543, And not so long ago, he headed the Cognition, Religion and Theology Project at Oxford University. It appears that just by virtue of being human beings with the kind of minds that we have, living in the ordinary sorts of environments we do, that as a course of normal human development, we tend to get a suite of, you might think of them as cognitive mechanisms or gadgets in our heads that uh, encourage us to think along certain pathways. And some of those appear to be things like looking for meaning, purpose in the natural world around us, in events, trying to explain why things happen to us, for instance, why a sort of surprising fortune and misfortune befall us, why does there appear to be so much order in the world, why are some things good and other things aren't, and so forth and so on. And those of us working in this area called cognitive science of religion think that there are these then strong natural predispositions to answer those kinds of questions, not explicitly, but sort of unconsciously on the level of, well, someone seems to be a better candidate to a lot of those, or at least some ones, it may be many people, many kinds of minded beings. We think naturally in terms of minded beings. And of course, that can't just be human beings. They don't account for why there are mountains and why ecosystems work the way they do and so forth. But we need something a little more powerful So enter the gods, or if it's a more mundane type of thing of, well, why are my crops bad, but everybody around me seem to be having good crops or good luck one way or another? Well, maybe I've offended my ancestors or or something like that, right? But again, it, it seems that the conceptual path of least resistance for us is to think in terms of who done it, as opposed to what are the mechanisms by which this came about. So a predisposition toward assuming human agency or human-like agency in events. Is that the case? Well, yes, something like human agency, but we quickly figure out, I mean, from early childhood, that humans won't do the job for a lot of these whodunit problems. And so we seem to find much more satisfying something a little bit bigger, mightier, (laughs) more, more knowledgeable and more powerful than human beings. And so God concepts or ancestor spirits or what have you are kind of sticky for human brains. They fit a conceptual gap that is naturally occurring in our minds. Does that explain then why a sense of spirituality, religion, if you like, exists around the world, but it takes very different forms? It hasn't unified into to one form of worship. I do think this is part of the explanation. Part of the diversity we see, though, amongst religious systems or spirituality as, as it's expressed also has to do with, well, what are the particular kinds of conceptual problems that the gods in question or spirits are getting slotted into? So do they have to do with making broad meaning of why there's life at all, why, you know, we have moral order, sort of these big questions like that? Well, then we need 
a big God that can slot into that space. But if really the problems we're trying to solve is how can I maximize the likelihood that I'm going to be successful in my business in the next year or avoid illness or recover from illness? Well, then a, a local God could do the job or, you know, a minor spirit. Recently, uh, anthropologist Pascal Boyer has been making the distinction between what you might think of as organized world religions, what we're most accustomed to, versus wild religions. And I find it a helpful metaphor because what he's getting at is these wild variants are kind of the things that have been there a long time and seem to keep coming up regardless of what sort of organized religions want. They're sometimes denigrated as superstition or, or as magic, but they're all over the world and they tend to even coexist sometimes with the domesticated or organized religions. So yes, our cognitive dispositions lead us to posit gods in many cases and to develop what we usually think of as religious systems. But the variation has to do with what kinds of conceptual work or problems those gods seem to be doing. And so you're quite right, as in much of Europe, as we've seen a decline in participation in traditional organized religion, you know, Christianity in particular, fewer people are going to church and identifying themselves as Christians or believers in God. At the same time, we see a rise in paganism, magic, witchcraft, and all kinds of spiritism. It occurred to me last year, looking at American politics and QAnon, that QAnon has some of the vestiges of religion in the sense that there is this set of beliefs, you know, instructions, almost like a Bible or a commandments. There's a mysterious leader who issues these things, but is never, never there. We don't know who this person is or even whether they exist. There's a kind of earthly Pope-like figure, human leader in the form of Trump, is there a kind of sense of religiosity to QAnon? Is that one way of understanding that conspiracy theory? It's a helpful road to go down as a point of comparison, because what it lays bare is that the kinds of psychological dynamics that we see that undergird religious systems can show up in other kinds of almost religious kinds of behavior, in personality cults, in celebrity cults, in strong affection for one's favorite athletic team. And the reason why that's important is it starts eroding this idea that there's this thing called religion out there that has one kind of explanation that separates it from the rest of human sociality, human culture, human thought. And that's just not the case. What we typically recognize as religion or religions actually has many similarities with other kinds of things like these strange political splinter movements, for instance, like really big political movements, because it's sort of mixing and matching different kinds of psychological triggers, if you will. So think of culture as I don't know, a little bit like a chef in the kitchen cooking things up, right? Where you've got a limited number of ingredients, but how you mix the ingredients give you different dishes, different tastes, different flavors and so forth. But there's a finite way to mix those. So sometimes you see similar ingredients in what we would call you know, domesticated or organized religions, sometimes slightly overlapping, but different set of ingredients get you wild religions, a different set of ingredients get you sports cults, <laughs> you know, fandom, another set give you things like these different political splinter movements. So of course, there are going to be some overlap. And the more we look at those, and we can understand those dynamics, I think the better we can predict those, understand how to respond to them, and so on. Dr. Justin Barrett, 
At the University of Boston, Kate Stockley has been researching the growing use of new technologies to stimulate the brain and thereby produce religious sensations. She's the co-author of a new book called Spirit Tech, The Brave New World of Consciousness Hacking and Enlightenment Engineering. We just kind of saw this emerging space of technological development, and it's a new application of technology to all sorts of spiritual goals. And we saw this as something that wasn't just a kind of a fringe activity, but also something that really should and could be of interest to religious studies scholars like us. So we saw how different types of folks are using the new science and new technology to kind of reimagine their spiritual lives. And so since we're also interested in understanding where religion and spirituality is kind of going in the near future and in the far future, it seemed imperative to kind of understand this new relationship that's being built between religion and science and religion and technology. So technology sort of infiltrating all different types of aspects of our lives and even potentially our spiritual lives. And when we use the term spirit tech, what sort of technology are we actually talking about? That could be different for a lot of different people. So it's a good question to ask. For us, we're really looking at technologies that are, and and broadly defined, but particularly technologies that are influencing the brain more or less directly. Brain stimulation, neurofeedback, guided meditation. These have direct influences on the brain. Even things like virtual reality is a brain-based technology in the sense that it really does affect your perception. You know, it sort of plays tricks on your brain in a sense. And it's important to point out that religions, people who are religious have always been using or have long been using tools, different types of tools and different types of practices to enhance the kind of feelings that they associate with spirituality, haven't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And we're really interested in putting these spiritual technologies into context with that historical sense. You know, written books, rosary beads can be a type of meditative pattern that sort of helps focus, helps prepare your heart and mind for prayer and things like that. There's also been a lot of technologies of the body. So for instance, whirling dervishes in the Sufi tradition, a mystical tradition of Islam, spin around in circles, spin, 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 you know, to kind of alter and affect their brain states. So yeah, we're interested in kind of contextualizing these new technologies in the long history of humans' relationship with all of the different types of tools and techniques that we've found to affect our consciousness. And people who are now using brain stimulation technologies as part of a religious experience, are they trying to enhance the sort of mental experiences that we would associate with feelings of religiosity, or are they trying to simulate those experiences? Yeah, I think we're most interested in the folks who are interested in enhancing the types of religious and spiritual experiences that have been recognisable by spiritual and religious traditions over the years. So in a lot of cases, they're gaining their goal state, right? The goal state for these technologies is based on the traditional wisdom gleaned from the wisdom traditions. And so the the spirit tech innovators, the folks who are really 
attempting to build these technologies are informed by the wisdom that has been gained over the ages. For instance, a lot of times the research will begin by looking at the brains of expert meditators and of expert spiritual folks. So using our new technological ability to take images, either functional MRI images, things like this, to look at the brains of the folks who have been spending, you know, 50 years meditating, we can see how the brain looks when it's in those states. And then with the forms of technology that we have, things like brain stimulation and neurofeedback, we've learned that it's possible to help lead the brain into that state. So it's not so much imposing a false simulated sense of an experience into the brain, but rather almost coaching the brain toward a meditative state. Looking ahead, if we are seeing a rise of individual spiritualism and a move away from the dominant traditional churches, what's the future for religion as you see it? How do you see things playing out over the next 50, 100 years? That's always the $100 question, isn't it? Nobody knows. There are just too many factors at play. But I'll give you my guess, my hunch. I think that formal religiosity will continue to decline in the wealthy countries of the West. We're gonna have less religious generations raising even less religious children and so on, a sort of compounding effect. My guess is that will lead to a situation where the committed religious groups, whether Catholic or Protestant or Muslim or whatever, are going to be smaller demographically and probably a little bit more exclusive and maybe a little more committed. In the longer term, I think that this secularization that we've experienced over the past couple hundred years, and especially accelerating since the 1960s, is ultimately not sustainable. It's not something you can have a long-term plan for a civilization on. Obviously, many people disagree with that. I think that there's many, many people who hope for a kind of like Star Trek world where we've achieved secularization as well as a sort of like enlightenment mastery of the world where most of our problems are solved, so we don't need religion. That's impossible. I mean, we live in an entropic world. We live in a physical universe that is defined by entropy. In order to get more order in one part of the world, you have to take order from some other part of the world. So one good example is that for that in our own context is that we've created a ton of order in our developed societies. You know, we've got massively developed infrastructure and we have medicine, that public health that keep us alive for much longer than we used to be. We've created these very orderly societies, and we've done so by creating a ton of disorder in the natural world around us. We are subsidizing our own thriving off of the destruction of natural resources that are often non-renewable, and you can reach threshold points in complex systems where the system can't recover anymore. So my reading on things is it's just not even physically possible for our march of progress to continue indefinitely. And when it stops or starts sliding backwards and, you know, when things start becoming harder, which it will, I think that's when you'll see more return to religiosity, whether it's new forms of religion that we haven't even dreamt up yet or uh, return to older forms that are sort of revamped for a new context. It's important to understand that the demise of religion has been predicted for about the last 150 years. It's just around the corner, we've been told over and over again, and it, and it hasn't been. 
So I think we should immediately be a little bit hesitant before we declare the death of religion, in part because it seems to have very deep evolutionary roots, psychological roots. There have been moments in history since then, the Soviet Union tried to get rid of it and it came back. The Chinese Cultural Revolution has tried to get rid of it. And yet we see that in the Chinese context, at least some sociologists of Chinese religion say that even Christianity is growing at record speeds, at rates of rivaling the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, even at the same time that the Chinese educational system and economy is growing. So the notion that to be educated and wealthy means you're not going to be religious just hasn't fit the facts on the ground terribly well. That isn't to say we don't see, of course, we see signs that people are leaving organized religion, institutionalized religion. So I think the facts that we've observed over the past, especially 100 years, the sociology, the psychology and evolutionary science of religion all point to well, we may see religions change in their form. We may see them serving slightly different social roles, meaning-making roles, undergirding our morality in different ways, but they don't seem to be going away. They may be changing, but they sure don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Justin Barrett. We also heard today from Connor Wood, Kate Stockley and Linda Woodhead. The producer for this edition of Future Tense was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.